Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today... We assess the situation on the front lines as Russian troops occupy Severodonetsk. On Friday, we spoke about Russia's impending default on foreign debts. This has now happened, the first time since 1918. Our economics reporter, Louis Ashworth, gives us his analysis. And we're also live from the G7. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 27th of June, day 124. And alongside Louis Ashworth, I'm joined by The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols and our Whitehall correspondent, Tony Diver. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from the front lines in Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. The big news over the weekend is the loss of the city of Severodonetsk in the, the Donbass, lost by Ukraine to Russian forces. It was, it's been coming for a while now, been under immense pressure in that area, and the, the city has, has been absolutely pounded. Russia have... Uh, have pushed forward. They've made these incremental advances, as we've seen over the last few weeks, very, very heavily led with artillery and then using increasingly less well-trained troops to to follow up behind. Ukraine has been slowly ceding ground. We made an assessment last Friday um, that this was actually a, a, a sort of strategic uh, manoeuvre to 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 slow down the Russians because Severodonetsk is it's an important city. It's a big city in the Luhansk Oblast. It's a, there's a there's a large steel plant there, but it's not it's not of strategic importance. It's not a big political or cultural or um, population heavy um, centre. Uh, but what it was was it was it it was holding up the Russian advance, um, and we think that they were they were trading space slowly for time, but also to uh, to get Russia to wear themselves down, wear the forces down. So the Ukrainian defence has fallen back slightly to the west, to the sister city of Lysychansk, on, on the other side of the river uh, and on higher ground, so more easily defended, although today the mayor of the city is advising people to leave. Um, I mean, the whole area is coming under incredible pressure from, from Russia, so so likely to see that Lysychansk will be ceded as well in the next uh, the next few days, I would have thought. Uh, elsewhere, there have been a number of missile strikes around the the country we've seen uh, we saw uh, footage from from Kiev which hasn't been hit uh, very recently and it was uh, it was struck at the, the same time as the G7 meeting so uh, as we've seen before when the UN secretary general visited Russia just makes these statements i mean tactically operationally strategically pointless they they don't do anything they've just they've just brought more death and hardship and and misery to the um to the civilian 
population of Ukraine. But we should expect to see that probably over the, uh, over the next few days as the G7 summit winds up and the NATO summit, more of that later, but the NATO summit kickstarts in, in Madrid. But interestingly, there's also been a number of of deep strikes, so high, long range and precision and precise strikes from Ukraine. So a number of Russian command posts have been hit across the country. A number of arms depots uh, have been hit. There's footage online. You'll find it on social media. Something very big hit a Russian arms depot in, in the Luhansk Oblast this morning. It could be one of the high Mars system, the new US high mobility artillery rocket systems, these very long range, very precise artillery systems. Or it could be one of the existing Toshka ballistic missiles that, that we know Ukraine has. Um, it doesn't really matter what it what what was fired, except for two reasons. Firstly, that it that it hit the target it was going for, seemingly, because it was a very high value target. And secondly, if it was a Toshka missile, that, that's interesting because it, it suggests that Ukraine might actually have the confidence to use what few of these accurate ballistic missiles they have left because they're being backfilled by HIMARS. Um, only well, a couple of other things to note over the weekend. There's a report on um, uh, CNN that America is going to provide a, um, uh, a Norwegian advanced service air missile system, the, the NASAMS. This is a, um, an anti-air a missile system, but it's a range of about 25 kilometers up to 50,000 feet. It's very, it's, it's very, uh, very modern. It's very connected. It uses the NATO Link 16 data module. And what that means is that, that it can talk to a load of other equipment. Um, so it can be, uh, it can take a feed from, from other radars and other equipment elsewhere to, uh, to, to put it onto, to incoming threats. It's also very clever in, in that it separates the fire control mechanism and the launchers from the radar and um, and all the other links. So it, as a as a system, rather than just the individual pieces of equipment, it is uh, it's able to take a bit of bit of punishment and have certain elements of that system knocked out and still be able to fire. So it's a Norwegian system. That's the launcher and the and the uh, control system. But the missile itself is a US missile. It's an AMRAAM advanced medium range air to air missile. Um, is that actually fired? And just one final one final tactical update. Um, there's been another round, seemingly another round of sackings of Russian senior officers. So we've seen uh, Colonel General Andrei Sadukov, who's the commander of the Airborne Forces, the VDV, the Russia's Airborne Forces, has seemingly been sacked. More importantly, Alexander Dvornikov, who is commander of the Southern Group of Forces, but also, uh, we think, the overall operational commander for the entire war has been sacked. You may remember in the first few weeks, Russia seemed to be fighting four different wars, three army wars, one in the north, one in the east, one in the south, uh, and an air force war as well. And the and also some naval stuff wobbling around in the in the Black Sea. But but these were completely disjointed. They weren't talking to each other. And we saw the um, we saw them ejected from the north of the country. Then Russia said that actually the the uh, priority all along had been the Donbass. And they put Dvornikov in charge of the theater, the Ukrainian theater, to pull it all together and to make the make the make the concert sing. Um, and they have since then had some tactical uh, advances, as we saw, we've seen today with Severodonetsk. However, it's been so slow and at such cost that uh, we think that might be why Dvornikov has been replaced. So very interesting that, I mean, regardless of what, of what you might think of the Russian Russian tactics, they, they would consider it a success that they are slowly creeping west. However, it doesn't scream of being very happy with your command and control and your senior leadership if you are sacking generals left, right and centre. I think I'd better take a break before my voice cocks out. Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, 
Tony Diver, can I come to you next? Uh, Don mentioned a few times in his intro there uh, the G7. You're there. You've been you've been attending. What's happening and what's how is Ukraine uh, on the agenda for for the G7? Hi, David. Yeah, well, I think it's fair to say Ukraine is the agenda, actually. Uh, Pretty much every session that we've had of the G7 uh, since it started has in some way involved Ukraine. Um, This morning, we had what was probably the most Ukraine-heavy session, and actually President Zelensky himself dialed in to speak to G7 leaders um, and to urge them to give more support to the country. So they were there discussing defence and security matters, um, and President Zelensky urged them to try and end the war in Ukraine before the winter. And there were some concerns in in Ukraine that actually uh, colder weather advantages Russian forces, um, whether that's to do with frozen ground and tanks, or whether it's because the Russians uh, are largely shelling and and Ukrainians have troops on the ground, that there is a feeling that there's a tactical advantage or a strategic advantage to be gained through the cold weather. And so Zelensky's message to, to Western leaders this morning was pretty clear, and that is we need to get this over and done with as fast as possible. Uh, but more broadly, there has been a sort of geopolitical discussion going on about the war uh, over the course of this summit. And before we turned up here and before the UK delegation turned up, there was some briefing from UK sources, both in Number 10 and in the Foreign Office. There was a bit of concern that some Western leaders um, and the sort of the finger was was very subtly pointed at President Macron um, believe that actually the best way to end this war was to have a settlement, a negotiated settlement with the Russians sooner rather than later, and that that settlement might involve ceding of some territory to the Russians by the Ukrainians. And it could mean, for instance, you know, they say, well, Putin can have the Donbass as long as there is an end to hostilities. Uh, And the UK's position has been that that's not the right thing to do, that we're not in the position yet to start negotiating a peace deal. And that the most important thing is that we fight uh, and continue fighting hard and and sending military and economic support. Uh, So that's been sort of the backdrop to to the summit so far. Um, And what's actually happened is statements have gone out this morning, both from Boris Johnson and from the G7 leaders all together in a communique that says that they've all basically come to that conclusion, that they agree with Britain uh, and they think that now is too early to be talking about a peace deal. So a sort of big diplomatic win for Boris Johnson from our point of view, um, but also sort of more broadly tells us that G7 leaders are basically saying that the war is here to stay for the time being. Um, But strategically speaking they would like to get it done done before the winter that i would say is probably probably the top lines that have come out so far um the summit is ending ending this evening with a nice leaders barbecue uh, which unfortunately president Zelensky won't be able to join given that he was only only here virtually but that will be enjoyed enjoyed by the other leaders so from everything you've seen um i mean do you get the sense that the united front from the g7 is still there or are there are there cracks in the alliance what do you make of it well, I think there was a feeling before we got here that there might be some cracks. Um, and I think, actually, we're coming out of it feeling much more like the G7 is united on this stuff, which is very helpful given that the NATO conference begins tomorrow. So uh, we're now sort of heading from a, from a group of a smaller group of Western economic powerhouse countries um, to a much wider block of, of, of Western defence alliance tomorrow. So I think it's quite good, really, that we're, we do feel like we've got some unity in the G7. Um, I mean, sort of more broadly, that there is there's always a bit of rumbling on the UK side because the UK views itself as being Zelensky's main ally in the West, even more than than America, and because the UK therefore sees, I think Boris Johnson sees himself as a slightly as a bit of an envoy of 
President Zelensky and, and takes it upon himself to tell other leaders what Zelensky would like them to do. Um, get the feeling perhaps that might be slightly irritating if you're President Macron or, 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 or Joe Biden. But there's definitely, a, there's definitely a feeling that the UK is trying to take the lead here. Um, and actually, people in the Foreign Office that I was talking to were saying one of the key things that they've been discussing, when we do get to the point where there might be a negotiated peace settlement, um, is who exactly is sitting around the table when that happens. And there is a bit of concern that at the last time there was any discussion of, of territory in Ukraine and its relationship with Russia, uh, back in the Minsk Agreement, where it was decided that Donetsk and Lugansk would get this sort of um, semi-autonomous uh, status, uh, it was actually France and Germany that were around the table negotiating that with Russia and Ukraine and not the UK and the US. And there is a feeling in the Foreign Office that when we do get to that point, it's important that the UK continues to have major input because I think Boris Johnson views himself as quite bullish on this stuff uh, and less less willing to roll over. But no, I mean, in answer to your question, this is all stuff in the future. For the time being, it certainly seems like that there's these leaders are completely united uh, on Ukraine and, and, and the message is keep pumping support in and even if it hurts domestically at home, even if it costs you a lot of money, um, this stuff's really worth doing and, and you know, Boris Johnson said, himself said this morning that you know, his, his phrasing was that freedom, some freedom is worth fighting for and I think that's, that's the message that I think other leaders would agree with. Thanks Tony, I think Dom's got a question for you as well. Yeah, hi Tony. Um, thanks for calling in. Sounds sounds great. I just wonder if you've got an opinion from the, the from what you're seeing in the Foreign Office in particular, but other officials you're speaking to more broadly about the shape of security architectures. And what I mean is that that this G7 meeting, ostensibly sort of an economic meeting, has been dominated by Ukraine and uh, albeit the, the economic aspects of it, but still front and centre there. Um, and notably, Japan obviously is is present. And then tomorrow, uh, when the NATO meeting kicks off, Japan, uh, along with uh, Australia, New Zealand and Republic of Korea are going to be in the NATO meeting uh, as a, a sort of observer status. But, you know, so J- Japan um, having a foot in foot in both camps there. And I just wonder if you if you if you thought that that there's a sort of a changing framework to the way the security in the round is is being seen now at, a, at very senior levels. It's, it's, it's not just the military sphere, it's economics and it's global. Just wonder if you had any view on that. Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, we know that all of these leaders obviously interact in various different ways in, di- in different um, organisations, don't they? But yeah, I think it does, it does feel like that. It's worth saying, I think, that the majority of the discussion of action that could be taken against Russia that's been had at this summit has been economic. And there's been lots of discussion of sanctions, for instance. Uh, all the G7 countries have announced new sanctions on imports of Russian gold, which is Russia's second largest import. So that's designed to sort of hit Russia in the wallet. Um, there's also been discussion of putting a price cap on Russian oil exports to, you know, stop stop Russia basically benefiting from global rise in in oil prices. But yeah, I mean, it has it has felt largely economic, and I think you probably would expect that for the G7. But I mean, from a domestic point of view, a lot of these countries are talking about how you tackle the cost of living crisis and deal with domestic budgets. And you know, obviously, a lot of what that money is being spent on is military kit, it's military training, and 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 all that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I think it will perhaps feel to these leaders going into NATO tomorrow that they're having some of the same conversations again. Although, obviously, the NATO summit will be, you know, much more military focused, um, and 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 there'll be far more far more countries there. So, yeah, I mean, inevitably with these things, there's a bit of an overlap. But I think it's probably good that we've dealt with a lot of those economic issues, and we can now focus on the military stuff next week or later this week. Thank right? you very much. Tony, for that, can I bring in, talking about overlapping uh, concerns here, can I bring in Louis Ashworth, our economics reporter? We've talked about oil caps uh, in Russia and also bans on imports of gold. Louis, do you have anything to add to that? 
Yeah, so as as Dom and Tony were saying, you know, there's a very heavily economic element to all this. And we've seen uh, one sort of solid plan emerging from the G7 today, which is this new initiative to ban new gold imports coming in from Russia. And we're also seeing the beginnings of a development of a second policy, which would involve a price cap on Russian oil. So on the first one, it's it's a very symbolic kind of change. So Russia, as we know, and as we've discussed before, the key part of its sort of export engine that supports its economy so much is oil. But gold is also a very important one. There are a lot of big gold producers and refiners uh, in Russia. And so it's, it's a very important um, part of the sort of trade picture for them, this, this, this precious metal space. Um, the G7 have said that they want to ban new gold imports. Um, that obviously will have an effect. But at this point, it's quite symbolic. Um, one of the big factors here is that the, the London Bullion Market Association, which is a big sort of certifying body for the gold industry, already uh, removed uh, removed gold refiners from its accreditation list uh, back in March. So in effect, this is an area where the industry self-sanctioned itself months ago, and we're only just now seeing the politics catch up with that. Now, there hasn't been a total shutdown of, of gold exports from Russia. There have been um, examples recently of um, some Swiss companies bringing in, bringing in Russian gold. But already, again, yeah, this is an area where it's been quite tightly locked down um, this is, you know, a good sort of thing to add. It's, it's, you know, another another sort of chip on the on the sanctions pile, but um, but ultimately, in and of itself, not a hugely um, effective sanction at this point. Um, I mean, Warren Patterson, who's head of commodity strategy at ING, the Dutch bank, said um, the impact likely to be fairly limited, given the industry already took steps to restrict Russian gold. It looks as though it's largely symbolic. So. That is kind of the long and short of it. What's what's more interesting is uh, the sort of second economic policy that's being drawn up, which is uh, to try and introduce a, a cap on the price of Russian oil. So, as we've discussed previously, um, uh, when I was on the podcast, um, perhaps last week or the week before, talking about sanctioned Russian oil. So, so Russian oil has been selling at a steep discount to the sort of benchmark Brent crude for um, for a while, basically since the start of the conflict. Brent crude's around just above $100 a barrel. Um, you can get Russian Urals crude for more like $70 a barrel. Um, what the G7 are looking at doing now is trying to introduce a price cap on Urals crude, which would uh, essentially, the, the, it would have a sort of two-sided effect. And you can see why politicians have been drawn to this. So on the one hand, by setting a price cap, you would uh, reduce the amount of revenue that Russia is getting, which obviously is very important. Oil is absolutely integral to the Russian economy, and if you can reduce the price for it, you can uh, you can you know, really really hurt Moscow's kind of war chest um, for for um, for the for the war in Ukraine, and indeed uh, all elements of how the of how the state operates. Um, the flip side of this, as well, is that by attempting to uh, reduce the price, and effectively what they're suggesting here is creating a, a buyer's cartel. So everyone begins communicating with each other. Everyone agrees they won't spend over a certain amount, and in that way, you can effectively force down the price. Um, by creating that buyer's cartel, they would then be hoping to try and take some of the heat out of the global oil market. Um, you know, if you reduce prices for Russian oil, um, those places that are still buying that oil will almost certainly then go for Russian oil because it's so cheap. Uh, they then won't be competing as much for oil from other places like Saudi Arabia, other parts of the Middle East. Um, and in that case, you then hope that you might reduce the oil price globally generally. Now, remember that in basically all the G7 countries that are here, 
probably fair exception should be noted for Japan. Um, most of these leaders are coping with inflationary crises at home. Um, you know, the cost of living crisis is not just a UK thing; it's a, it's a sort of across across the West um, and you know, across most of the world kind of thing currently. Um, this, it's a two, it's a kill two birds with one stone kind of situation because if you can successfully get the price down, you'll both be hurting Russia and you'll hopefully then as a knock-on effect, be reducing energy prices at home and trying to take some of that pressure out of inflation. Um, as we discussed before, um, a lot of, uh, certainly in Europe, they're bringing in, sorry, in the US, they've already uh, largely stopped these imports of Russian fuel. Um, the EU is preparing to make illegal uh, seaborne imports of Russian fuel. So really, actually, the people this is directed at are China and India. And what we're seeing here is the beginnings of some quite, some kind of quid pro quo. So again, going going back, um, the EU uh, a few weeks ago introduced these new sanctions that prevent uh, um, ships, Russia affiliated ships that are carrying Russian oil, from uh, accessing the uh, European insurance market and the London insurance market, which is absolutely crucial because insurance is integral to how the shipping industry works. Um, what we're seeing probably begin to develop here is a situation in which Russia and China may be, uh, sorry, sorry, apologies, China and India may be induced to go along with introducing this price cap. Um, and in exchange, there may be exceptions exemptions introduced to allow them to access those insurance markets. So there's a bit of, bit of give and take here. It's going to be a bit of a difficult sell, actually particularly within the EU, because it was quite a struggle to even get that, uh, that ban on insurance through the EU. Um, so a lot of kind of moving pieces here and a lot of um, difficult political challenges. But yeah, that's kind of the, the economic side of what we've seen develop. Great. I wonder if I could just um, jump in there, David, if you don't mind, because they've got a bit of breaking news um, on this topic, which is coming out of the Schloss Elmau, which is where just up the road from where I am now, where the, the G7 summit is taking place. Um, there has been a briefing for reporters by the US National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, um, who's given us a bit more of an idea partly of what President Zelensky has been saying in that meeting this morning that we were discussing earlier, and also on what the US aid package might look like. And obviously, as I just said to Dom, that a lot of this is economic. It's about sanctions and it's about you know how economies can deal with uh, the fight against Russia in Ukraine. But actually, what the National Security Advisor has told reporters, he says, if you don't mind me quoting, he says, I can confirm that we're in the process of finalising a package that includes advanced air defence capabilities uh, and that the President Biden told President Zelensky that we intend to finalise a package that includes advanced medium and long-range air defence capabilities for the Ukrainians and some other items of urgent need, including ammunition for artillery and counter-battery radar systems. So clearly there's a bit of, um, there's, there is actually a bit of hard defence chat going on here. It's not just purely economics. Um, the other thing I think is of, of interest is a bit of briefing here about President Zelensky. Um, they're saying that Zelensky told the G7 countries that he needed more air defence capabilities, um, and that's a direct response to the recent attacks in Kyiv, which happened overnight and, and, the, and the night previously. Um, I think it's quite interesting that those attacks coincided with the G7 summit. Um, and I was actually talking to someone in Downing Street last night who said that they thought it was pretty stupid of Vladimir Putin to launch this attack on Kyiv at the, exactly the time that all of these leaders were meeting in in. Germany for the G7 because all it would do is stiffen the resolve of these Western leaders because they would be meeting with Zelensky, albeit virtually, and uh, and and 
would basically mean that they would be more likely to to take action against him. So um, that's, I mean, an interesting piece of breaking news there. Um, Then if anything more comes through, then I'll let you know. But um, interesting briefing there from the US side, I would say. Yeah, that's uh, Dom here again, Tony. That's great. Thanks for that. That's really interesting. That that air defence system that Jake Sullivan's talking about is almost certainly going to be the NASAMS I mentioned at the start, the Norwegian Advanced Surface to Air Missile System. Um, so that that's undoubtedly what, what's going into Ukraine now. Uh, just a reminder, so it's a Norwegian Launcher and Control System, but it's actually a US missile, the US AMRAAM Advanced Medium Range Air-to-Air Missile that uh, that comes out of the tube. Range of 25 kilometres, up to about 50,000 feet. Um, but most importantly, it runs on the NATO Link 16 data a tactical um, or tactical uh, data link network, and and therefore can take feeds from from a number of different systems and can disperse its own data uh, across the network and can act in a dis- dispersed manner. So the control system can be away from the radar, which can be away from the launcher. So if any part of it is attacked, it doesn't mean that the whole system is is going to be um, uh, taken out, um, uh, taken off the battlefield. So yeah, that's undoubtedly the NASAM system that Jake Sullivan, the U- U.S. National Security Advisor, has just been talking about. Thank you very much, Dom, and thank you, Tony, for that breaking news from you there in in Austria. Um, it's astonishing, really. There's been so much going on um, that we're coming. We're 25 minutes into talking. We've only just got to the huge economic news of the past 24 hours. Um, Louis, can you talk us through Russia's default? This is something you 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 you, you previewed for us last week. Well, it's, it's very generous of you, David, to say I've only previewed this last week. Uh, I was looking back, and I've been writing about this for well over three months now. So it's uh, been a long time coming. But we're finally there. Russia has defaulted on its foreign debts for the first time in a century. Um, So as I sort of said last Friday, uh, there was a coupon payment of $100 million that uh, Moscow was supposed to make on on bonds uh, on the 27th of May. It failed to make that payment. Uh, The 30-day grace period subsequent to that has lapsed. And as a result, uh, yeah, defaults occurred. So it's the first time Russia has failed to pay its foreign foreign, um, creditors since uh, 1918. Uh, when the sort of Bolsheviks repudiated the Tsar's debts. Um, it has defaulted in the period since. In 1998, it uh, defaulted on its domestic debts. Um, but yeah, the first time this is the first time it's failed to pay those foreign bondholders in, in over a century. Um, this default was very expected. We essentially knew with certainty this was going to happen uh, for the last several weeks because the US had effectively cut cut off the system by which uh, Russia would have made this payment. So Russia, uh, the US had previously allowed uh, bondholders to receive payments from Russia um, as part of an exemption that was introduced when sanctions were first brought in uh, in response to the invasion. Uh, that exemption was allowed to lapse. Payment effectively became illegal. And at that point, default became inevitable. But it is now it has now occurred. Um, we don't really expect there to be a sort of immediate effect from this. Um, the sort of key... The key moment at which the impact of this will be felt is when Russia or perhaps Russian corporations next go to Western markets to tap them up for funding. Um, that may not be for a while. I mean, you're certainly not going to see uh, you're not going to see the Kremlin uh, sort of knocking on the knocking the doors of Wall Street and uh, asking for loans anytime soon. Um, they are they're already you know prized to the, to the Western financial system, and um, and that side is probably already knocked out even if this default hadn't occurred nonetheless it's a you know, huge symbolic blow to putin um 
Putin, uh, you know, for sort of very, very swift history. You know, he arrived as Russian president at a time when uh, the country's financial reputation was very poor, a time of huge inflation, a time when people were very uncertain about Russia's stability as a uh, as a sort of as a kind of emerging economy at that time. And um, to his credit, he's done a lot uh, to turn Russia into a very stable economy, uh, very sort of reliable payer of its debts. Um, uh, sort of very, very fiscally conservative and stable country. Um, and it's interesting to see now that as a result of this conflict, uh, we've seen you know, inflation has shot up. We've now seen it default. A lot of the things that he came into power saying, you know, I'm the antidote to this, I'm stopping this, are coming to pass again as a result of this action he's taken. So uh, interesting sort of um, uh, things going kind of full full circle there. Um, Russia, as a result of the sort of context of this default, um, has uh, has essentially brushed it off. They've said we're willing and able to make these payments. Um, uh, we this this is engineering by the White House, effectively, that has done this. Um, if if we if we could pay, then we would pay. But you've stopped us. Um, Anton Silinov, the finance minister, um, said before he's called the situation a farce. He says. Um, Anyone can declare whatever they like, but anyone who understands what's going on knows this is in no way a default. So that's the uh, sort of where we are with things at the moment. Um, and it might be a little while before we see the clear effects of this begin to pan out. That's fascinating. I mean, if the, for the Russian argument, we, we would pay, but we, we can't because the Americans cut us off. What, what does that mean? Has, this ha- has anything like this happened before? It's a good question. I mean, there's there's precedence with I, I think Iran is probably the clear one that you go to a country which has been kind of cut off from um, from uh, the Western financial system in that way. But it wasn't as sort of embedded as Russia was before this conflict happened. So so no, there isn't a particularly clear precedent in many ways. And the other substantial part of this to that to that willingness point is normally when a country defaults on its sovereign debt, it's because the country is is. Is completely broke. It's it's out of money. Uh, it's doing everything it can to continue the operations of its own government, to support its own population, um, and it hasn't. It, you know, you, you then don't pay your foreign your foreign creditors because you just don't have the money, and and it's very low priority. I mean, if you have a choice between do we do we have money to you know keep uh, keep the lights running in our country or the money to you know pay whatever Wall Street bank this coupon. You're always going to pick trying to keep the lights on in your own country because otherwise, you know, your government collapses. Russia is not at all a situation like that. Russia has huge amounts of money and and can very easily make these payments should it want to from the reserves that it has. Uh, but it's been rendered rendered unable, and that is that is a very unusual a very unusual situation. Um, it's it's also a difficult situation as well because. As um, as I said before, Russia is not likely anytime soon to need to go to the West and, and get money because that's the other side of it. Is is if you look at a country such as um, you know, Sri Lanka, which recently defaulted, there's the element of the default itself. They have no choice but to do it. But then they still need those foreign markets. They need to go to to foreign creditors and get the money to rebuild their economy, which has collapsed. Russia's economy has not collapsed. Russia doesn't need to go to those markets, so it's it's a weird sort of double sided situation. They they are in in effect in terms of the if, if we look within the very narrow scope of of um, of the sovereign debt of uh, who they owe money to of the situation of their creditors, Russia's effectively unscathed 
but this disconnect has still happened because of the U.S. actions. So it's 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 a very weird and unusual situation. Uh, so Levon um, Kamerian, who's associate director at Scope Ratings, which is a sort of big European ratings agency, said um, the default on Russia's foreign debt has limited near-term financial implications and should not compromise the state's ability to finance itself now. Russia continues to benefit from substantive windfall gains for its oil and gas exports due to high energy prices, reducing the need to borrow on foreign debt markets. Russia's access to foreign debt markets is mostly closed anyhow for the moment. So that's kind of where we are. It's, it's a very weird situation um, and not one that we have any kind of clear, clear precedent for. Well, thank you very much, Louis, for talking us through that. I wonder if Tony uh, or Dom have any observations, anything to add to this and maybe any questions for Louis? Yeah, actually, Leo, I thought that was really interesting. I just wondered what the sort of if there's any domestic political implications for this in the US. I mean, obviously, uh, a lot of these debts are owed to Wall Street banks, as you point out. Um, do, do, are these banks able to exercise any sort of pressure on the White House or, or, or any attempt to get President Biden to do something that might lead to them recouping that money? Or is it basically just accepted or ensured that this stuff is going to get written off because of the situation that Russia's in? That's a really good question. And this was one of the big um, debates that was occurring as as we approached the point at which the US kind of cut off this exemption and effectively made it so the default was inevitable. As Tony alludes to there, you know, these debts were held by by financial institutions, you know, by banks, by asset managers, by hedge funds. Um, they will now probably in the short term not receive those payments and and yeah there was there was pressure from uh, from wall street to use the sort of broadest possible term for the u.s financial industry onto the white house um and there were kind of two sides to that pressure because on the one hand you had people saying well you know we own these bonds we we should get this money we're financial institutions you can't just stop us receiving this payment don't you support you know business etc and then there was the other side of it which was um every time russia made a payment it was money going out of russia and into the west so why would you stop that and this was a very live debate and um in the end it seems to be that basically um the white house took the decision you know we're introducing all these different sanctions lots of them have business impacts that hurt us as well as russia we just have to hope they hurt russia more than us and this is um, this is basically where they appear to have landed with it. They um, this was a an active decision. Uh, Janet Yellen, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, was talking about this a lot. Um, that that they they had this choice, and clearly they've gone with this option. They they've deemed that it's a big enough symbolic blow to um, to deal to to go ahead with it. Um, in terms of the scale of the damage, um, there's again a sort of couple of sides to this. So the the, the first one is that overall. Russian Russia's foreign debt is not huge. A lot of it's held uh, it actually more folks in Europe than in the US. But um it's not a massive borrower and so we're not talking about a sort of material impact to western markets from this money not coming in. It's it's not the case that yeah Russia's Russia's not going to be paying out on its bonds and therefore you're going to see a bank collapse somewhere because they were too they were too invested in it. It's not that sort of level of there's not that level of exposure to it. Um the other side of this is that um, now that Russia has defaulted on these debts, there are still three years for bondholders. So uh, most most bonds have different covenants, but often they are sort of they have broadly similar features to them. The, the 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 covenants for these particular bonds that Russia has defaulted on stipulate that the holders have three years to to try and make a claim if the if the debt is not paid. That's a very interesting period of time because that is enough time that conceivably you could imagine that the conflict in Ukraine 
might end, that there might be some element of rehabilitation, that Russia might um, might uh, you have have returned to Western markets. There might be a sort of thawing of those kind of tensions. And if that happens, it's very easy to imagine a situation in which those bondholders do actually get paid. It will just be a few years down the line rather than right now. So uh, sort of open questions there. And, and, and there is that impact and there has been that tension. But um, overall, um, we, 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 we've seen that the US has basically gone down this path of trying to, trying to deal a symbolic blow to Putin. And that's, that seems to have dictated the overall action here. Just one question for me, Louis, if, if I may. Uh, there seems to be sufficient grey areas around this this decision that I, I wonder what your view would be on the credibility of the White House coming out coming after this. If there's, I mean, Russia's ma- are masters in the, in what aboutery? You, you you put that point to them and they say, ah, oh, but what about this? You know, you, you did this over here, and they just sort of you know, blur the argument. You never, it's very difficult to land a blow. And I just wonder if this if if this is a a default. But you are able to make a very strong argument for Russia to have the ability to pay, as you've described. I just wonder if if there's if this has actually damaged the, the White House at all, and and is in in some ways a bit of a gift for Putin. In in the, it gives him more ammunition the next time we want to talk about um, Russia's economic viability on the open market. They can always say, well, you know, what about that? You you did that to us. We're perfectly able to get our hands on some loot. So just to, what's your view of of the of the the credibility of this decision from America. Yes, it's a great point, and I think, you know, obviously, as you said, there is this whataboutery approach that Russia takes. I think it's not difficult to uh, sympathy is completely the wrong word, but Russia's position in this is extremely understandable. I mean, Russia, uh, you know, has tried to make these payments, and they have they have tried to be good good debtors. Now, I'm sure there are lots of people who are creditors to Russia who hopefully now are wishing they hadn't become creditors to Russia, but nonetheless they are, and Russia has tried to pay them back. Um, whether it damages the White House is a is a difficult one. It's certainly, um, as sanctions go, it's one of the ones that feels a little bit more, perhaps, a- again, it, it, it's difficult. I, was, I, I want to use the word vindictive there because it is so, it is such a kind of Haha! We can press this exact button, and we can we can make this thing happen. You know, it's it's it, it's engineered in that sense. Um, it's very difficult to say what how sort of morally that plays out, though, because I, I think there are probably a lot of people who would say, "Good, it doesn't matter if it's if it's hugely artificial. All sanctions on Russia are a good idea, and we should be doing as much as we can to make Russia a pariah." And um. Even if even if this is a very artificial and engineered default, it can still have practical implications. Um, so an, an element of this is that if you're a if you're a Western investor, you might, for instance, say to your clients, you know, um, we, we 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 don't invest in the debt of countries that are deemed to have defaulted, or we have certain standards about how reliable um, debtors countries are before we lend them money. In those instances, those those um, financial institutions may by their own rules, not be allowed to lend money to to Russia. Um, the bigger impact then may come if these sanctions kind of can have a kind of contagion effect onto Russian corporations. Um, looking at it that way, there there is a kind of material impact here that will occur, and so for the White House to have done this is a sort of strategically sound move because e- even if even if it feels like a kind of 
weird way to go about doing it. If it's going to hurt Russia's economy, it's a good thing to do. Is is the sort of logic of logic of sanctions? So I think in that instance, um, in that case, actually, if you if you really sort of look at this in the broad, it, it makes sense as a strategic move for the White House to do this, and and the reasons that they've done it make, make a lot of sense and will have a serious impact. Um, but I I agree with you that Russia will probably find it very easy to make themselves the victim in this, and and they will have a strong argument for saying that they are. Thanks, and so I, I know I said I had one question, but of course I always have another. Um, my 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 personal beef. What's China going to think about this? So China um is is very interesting. So Chinese banks are probably the crucial player here. It's going to be a question of whether whether Chinese banks are willing to lend money to Russia as a state or perhaps more significantly Russian corporations. Um, if if they do so, there's sort of um, twin risks basically for Russian banks. The first one is sorry for sorry, apologies for Chinese banks. There's sort of twin risks for Chinese banks. So the, the first one is that they might be hit by secondary sanctions. So um, it's a very difficult. You know, we've we've seen. Uh, after initial kind of coordinated volleys of sanctions, uh, sanctions have been building up piece by piece all over the world towards China, sorry, towards Russia, and um, and Chinese banks have got to tread very carefully to ensure that they don't put themselves in a situation where they kind of can't operate without violating the, those Western sanctions. Because no matter how important the relationship between Russia and China is, um, for now China's relationship with the West is the more significant one, and it, it is absolutely crucial to those to those Chinese banks as well. Um, so there's that element. They have to sort of tiptoe around that. Um, secondly, if if uh, if Russia is deemed to have defaulted, it means there's going to be the prospect of debt restructuring talks in the future. Um, and, and that is going to create a situation in which Chinese banks are going to have to have a big sort of risk premium on the, on the loans that are given to Russia. So just operating with Russia is going to become much more expensive. So it's extra cost extra complexity. So far, we've seen that it looks like Chinese banks are very hesitant to lend money to Russia at the moment. Um, I suspect uh, a default will only will only intensify that and make it less and less appealing. So I, I wouldn't say that channel is completely cut off, but it, it makes it more difficult from a Chinese perspective as well. So it does also have does also have that impact. Well, thank you very much for that, Louis. That was comprehensive. And I think you've given us all a much better understanding of of the impact uh, and the implications of Russia's uh, default today. Um, I, th- I think we're starting to come to the end of our time here. So I just asked Dom, you're off to the NATO summit over the next few days. What should we expect from that? What, what could come from, from Madrid? Sure, just very quickly. So NATO summit kicks off tomorrow. It's kind of started already-ish, but uh, but tomorrow and uh, Wednesday, the, the big days. Um, Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, has already already spoken this morning, saying that the focus is going to be reaffirming that number one, Russia is the is the is the very clear uh, priority adversary against which uh, which NATO is built. But number two, China's coming up on the rails, uh, and number three, uh, uh, sort of terrorism and um, and uh, out of air operations. Jens Stoltenberg also says that the enhanced forward presence mission that that sort of the the forces along the eastern flank are going to be increased to brigade level. They're they're about battle group level at the moment. About six hundred people in each each of the eight eight countries along the eastern flank going to go up to a, a, a brigade, so roughly three times the size. The big thing from this from this NATO conference is going to be 
the what they call the comprehensive assistance package for Ukraine. What is going to happen for Ukraine? A lot of the big decisions about whether to support, when to support, for how long to support is is um, is the, is kind of the the lead, the power the political leaders domain of course these are these are not totally divorced i mean g7 and nato a lot of the same people are going clearly but a lot of the decisions are sort of in different fields but we're going to get a lot more sort of meat on the bones of of what the military decisions are from from nato and um nato Jens Stoltenberg says that nato is going to help ukraine particularly on secure comms anti-drone systems and fuel now nato doesn't have a lot of a lot of stuff of itself of course all the you know, the vast majority of the kit is owned by those national governments. So NATO doesn't have a lot of stuff, but it's talking about secure comm systems, anti-drone and uh, and fuel. So it's about all it can really do from its own stocks. But what it is going to do is going to try and help Ukraine move from uh, or transfer from former Soviet natures of equipment and ca- and uh, calibers and, and so on and so forth onto NATO equipment. And interestingly, for these uh, for this NATO conference, it's going to be joined by Australia, Japan, Republic of Korea, New Zealand, Georgia, and the EU. Um, so a lot of out of out of areas as as NATO starts to take a view and offer an opinion on on China and and uh, other security challenges around the rest of the world. So you get these other countries who are who are major regional players, major world players, major global players in many respects um, uh, attending these events. So it'll be interesting to see what nato says about uh, about ukraine in particular but also a, a view that it has more broadly about global uh, global events and uh, just one final thing in Soltenberg has announced that uh, tomorrow morning first thing on tuesday he's going to be having a, a a meeting with the the leaders of turkey sweden and finland they are i wouldn't say desperate but they'd be very very keen to finish this conference with that whole uh, sweden finland accession to nato uh, issue done and dusted have turkey on on board nice big smiles um handshakes photo calls all that kind of stuff have that bit put to bed at this nato conference they'd be very very keen for that to happen and he's um he's out the blocks first thing tomorrow um to try and uh, to try and get something uh, kicked off on that front but i'll let you know i'll be there over the next couple of days and i'll be be reporting in as normal well i will uh, i'll see you there don because i'm flying over from from germany tomorrow as well so we'll um let's catch up uh, I might just make a point about the, the politics of this. I think that point you made about um, Stoltenberg meeting meeting Turkey, Sweden, and Finland is interesting. Um, it's also worth pointing out that over the course of these two summits, both at the G7 and at NATO, Joe Biden is only meeting the host countries. So that's he's meeting uh, Olaf Scholz here, um, and, he, and he's meeting with the Spanish over in Spain. Um, the one exception that he's made to that rule is that he wants to meet President Erdogan, and that's going to happen at NATO as well. So that gives you a sense of how much of a political priority the Turkey question is um, at this NATO summit. Um, and uh, just from the British side, I mean, the British have been trying to get a bilateral, as far as I understand, with the Americans and have not been very successful so far. So that's in itself quite interesting. From, from the British point of view, um, we need to think a little bit about what the win might be from Boris Johnson at NATO um, and sort of outside of those quite complex policy questions that you were just chatting us through, Dom. Um, I think one of the main lines that's come out of both Boris Johnson and, and Liz Trust, the Foreign Secretary, and indeed Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, who are also going to be there uh, this week, is that the line that we always hear is that the NATO 2% defence spending commitment is 
is a floor, not a ceiling. And there has always been this feeling from, from the Brits that perhaps other countries could be pulling their weight a bit more in terms of funding. Um, so, I mean, it's slightly inevitable that at these conferences you end up having a quite crude discussion about fund funding and spending commitments, while at the same time you're trying to negotiate these pretty complex geopolitical um, and technological questions. But I think there probably will be some calls from the British for other countries to be spending more money on this um, and, and clearly what the conflict in Ukraine will be the justification that, that the British make for that. Thank you, Tony. Um, Louis, can I come quickly to you for your final thoughts? And then I'd just like to come back to Dom to give us a sense of what the tactical and strategic situation in Ukraine itself looks like over the next few days. So Louis Ashworth first, please. Thanks, David. Yeah, very brief final thoughts from me. Um, just that the the efforts to kind of put a cap on Russian oil prices, again, it sort of brings us back to this overarching point with everything we discuss about Russia's economy and Western sanctions is unless you tackle Russia's Russian oil, unless you do things to uh, you know, cut off and reduce the amount that Russian oil can do for, for the Kremlin... Uh, you're not really you're not really committed to sanctions whatsoever. So it's very interesting to see what they can manage to do on that front and how that affects uh, sort of relations with India and China. Um, it's the absolutely crucial point of, the, of this entire. You know, it, it goes above and beyond just this conflict, but it, it is the crucial point here. And so, what if anything the G7 can agree on that is going to be very interesting to to look out for. Yeah, just just to just to finish off. Um, one very minor point, just quickly on NATO, we're talking about funding there. Only nine of the NATO members currently meet the 2% spending rule. 19 have plans to reach it by 2024. So it is a, is a thorny issue and will be grappled with. In terms of final thoughts over the next few days, very likely that Russia are going to throw everything, including the stolen kitchen sink at Lysychansk. Also likely, therefore, I think that Ukraine will pull back and will cede that territory because then Russia will have taken the Luhansk Oblast and they will... That's a chance for them to say, hey, great victory, um, and m- maybe make a decision to do to do something else. Uh, they are almost in, uh, almost no chance that they can keep pushing to recover the ground or to take the ground, sorry, in the uh, Donetsk Oblast, which would then complete the whole of the Donbass because Russia is tired. It's worn out. The fighters are tired. The equipment is broken and old. They cannot keep pushing west. So I think Ukraine will cede the territory knowing now or knowing that, that Russia have to take the rest of Luhansk Oblast because that's all they can do before they kind of slump over the finish line. And then we'll see what Russia really wants to get out of this. And of course, all the while this is going on, those US high Mars and the multiple launch rocket systems and the other very high capability weapon systems are flowing into the into the Ukrainian arsenal, and they are using it to fight back. So I, I think we'll see some long-range fires, some uh, some more of these arms depots and command posts being targeted by Ukraine, just as uh, as the war in the in the uh, that sort of Severodonetsk pocket kind of grinds to an attritional halt. But I think um, there'll be an interesting point, a question to ask. Russia will ask themselves at that point whether, whether they carry going carry on, whether they can carry on, and from Ukraine, if they really take the fight into that deep battle. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.